0: Coming up next on the Passion Struck podcast.
1: I wouldn't say I was a natural leader. Uh, I was, um, but the academy gives you all the basics and lays the foundation. And then through great mentors, enlisted and officers, me and you, we, we were carried by people who helped shape and refine uh, our, our leadership skills and overall approach. And I'm thankful for every one of them. There's thousands of them that I couldn't name right now, but but that's kind of how it happened. and. What I, i've discovered and seen is that everybody has an opportunity to lead it doesn't have to be one in authority welcome visionaries
0: creators innovators entrepreneurs leaders and growth seekers of all types to the passion struck podcast hi i'm john miles a peak performance coach multi-industry ceo navy veteran and entrepreneur on a mission to make passion go viral for millions worldwide and each week i do so by sharing with you An inspirational message in interviewing high achievers from all walks of life to unlock their secrets and lessons to becoming passion struck the purpose of our show is to serve you the listener by giving you tips tasks and activities you can use to achieve peak performance and pursue a passion-driven life you have always wanted to have now Let's become passion struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 117 of the Passion Struck podcast. And thank you, each and every one of you who tunes in weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. And I wanted to share with you some of the amazing guests like today's episode we have coming up on the podcast. These include our episode on April 5th. Which will be with New York Times best-selling author Susan Kane, who is using our podcast to release her new book Bittersweet. And if you're not familiar with Susan, she is the author of Quiet, which has sold over 30 million copies. Additionally, we have New York Times best-selling author Gretchen Rubin coming up. New York Times best-selling author Admiral James Stavridis, who will be joining us May 25th to use the podcast to launch his new upcoming book. To risk it all, as well as astronaut, Nicole Stott, Jordan Harbinger, and many, many other incredible guests. And if you're new to the show, or you would like to introduce this to a friend or family member, we now have episode starter packs, both on our website and on Spotify. These are collections of your favorite episodes organized by topic that gives any new listener a great way to get acquainted to everything we do here on the show. Just go to passionstruck.com dot com slash starter packs to get started. And if you would prefer to watch these instead of listening to them, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel at John R. Miles, where we have well over 250 different videos that will give you a weekly dose of inspiration as well. Today's guest, the Honorable Tim Gallaudet, PhD, Rear Admiral, United States Navy retired, is the CEO of Ocean STL Consultant and the former host of the Blue Economy Podcast from 2017 through 2021. Admiral Gallaudet served as the Acting Undersecretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere, NOAA Administrator from 2017 through 2019. And prior to that, he served as the Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Ocean and Atmosphere, Deputy NOAA Administrator. Admiral Gallaudet had a 32-year career in the US Navy, culminating in him being the oceanographer of the Navy. He has a bachelor's degree from the US Naval Academy and holds master's and doctoral degrees from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And in today's discussion, we go into his journey, both going to the Naval Academy and then becoming an officer and what he learned from both of those experiences. We discuss some of our similar experiences we both had on our first ships in the Navy. We go into the role of an oceanographer and what they do for the United States Navy and other forces, as well as what it meant to be oceanographer of the U.S. Navy. We then go into his role at NOAA and some of the key initiatives he worked on when he was there, including the Blue Economy Initiative, Unmanned Maritime Systems, the Vulcan Skylight Maritime Information Tool, and many others. We also go into his leadership acumen and his one pager that I will put in the show notes. For the audience on the leadership skills that he learned throughout his 32-year career and finally we go into his upcoming book heavy seas leading america's top ocean agency in turbulent times so much great content here and thank you as always for joining passionstruck and joining me as your host and guide to creating an intentional life before we begin i would like to emphasize that this podcast is part of my hope and desire to bring zero-cost information to the general public regarding how to create an intentional life. In keeping with that theme, I would like to thank the sponsors of today's episode. Thank you, Green Chef, for sponsoring today's podcast. With fresh produce, premium proteins, and organic ingredients, you can trust Green Chef as the number one meal kit for eating well. I love the fact that whether you're looking for carb-conscious, gluten-free, plant-based, or calorie-conscious options, or you just want to have Delicious, balanced dishes. Green Chef has flavorful, healthy recipes that are sure to satisfy. Some of my favorite Green Chef recipes include salmon with chive cream sauce. It is so good. Steak with balsamic mushrooms, and my all-time favorite almond crusted barramundi. This has saved me so much time in food prep, and the food is absolutely delicious. Go to GreenChef.com/passionstruck130. And use code PassionStruck130 to get $130 off and free delivery. That is GreenChef.com/slash-PassionStruck130, and use code PassionStruck130 to get $130 off. Thank you, 10,000, for sponsoring today's episode. Physical health is essential to me and forms the very foundation for achieving elite performance. And if you're like me. It's so hard to find trading products that are built strong enough to stand up to my HIC classes, spin classes, CrossFit, and gym days. That is why I love 10,000 Apparel and its dedication to continuous improvement. They follow Malcolm Gladwell's prescription for perfection, and 10,000 is true to that philosophy with their attention to comfort and quality. I especially love their versatile, lightweight, breathable shirts and interval shorts, which feature an optional liner. They actually have a team of over 200 athletes testing their gear to ensure their dedication to create perfect fits, trims, fabric, and design all come to fruition. 10,000 is offering PassionStruck listeners 15% off your purchase. Go to 10,000.cc and enter code PASSIONSTruck to receive 15% off your purchase. That is T-E-N T H O U S A N D dot C C and enter code Passionstruck. Please consider supporting those who support the show and make it possible and free for our listeners. And I know all these links can be difficult to remember, so we are putting them in one community place for you. Go to passionstruck.com slash deals. Now back to Passionstruck. I am ecstatic to welcome Admiral Tim Gallaudet to the Passion Struck podcast. Welcome, Tim.
1: It's great to be here, John.
0: Well, it's great for me as well. And I have been trying to interview you for almost four years since you were at NOAA when we first started discussing this interview. And you and I share an alma mater. And whenever I have a guest on from the Naval Academy, I always ask them why they ended up attending the Academy.
1: Right. Well, uh, first off, the biggest reason I went to the Naval Academy was to study oceanography. And I had uh, learned about the Naval Academy program growing up in, in Southern California. And that's where my love for the ocean really originated. Uh, but my dad had been a reserve naval officer. So every Army-Navy game in December, you know, we were glued to the TV. It was, it was sort of a house law. And I got this sort of influence of the Academy, a very positive one. Um, but I, I didn't join just to go to the Navy. I really wanted to study the ocean. And it just turned out that the Naval Academy had one of the best undergraduate oceanography programs in the country, and it still does. So, uh, and, and, and I didn't know if I'd stay in the Navy, but I was able to do oceanographic work my entire career and loved it and never stopped. So it kind of worked out.
0: I got to see the oceanography program up close and personal because my roommate, Scott bodicker was in the oceanography program himself. But I have to tell you, if I had to do it all over again, I would have picked naval architecture and it was too bad. We didn't take those classes until our junior year because I just love them.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because I love naval architecture also and even ocean engineering, all that cool ocean tech. Uh, So uh, in hindsight, I probably could have majored in any of those and really enjoyed it just like you.
0: I understand you and I have something else in common. We both love endurance sports, and I think you grew up being a swimmer. And while at the Naval Academy, I was in varsity, cross-country, and track, but I think there are a lot of similarities between long-distance running and swimming, because whether it's spending a long time on the road or in the pool, it makes a huge difference, especially for a swimmer.
1: Yeah, how about that? I didn't know that about you, and you've done your homework. Congratulations. But yeah, swimming was a powerful influence on me. That's really how I ended up really falling in love with the ocean, doing these open water swims in Southern California. And I stuck with it. I swam at the Naval Academy, and I even continued that. And at one point, when I worked with the Navy SEAL headquarters in San Diego, uh, I kind of got back into training and, and broke the national record in the mile for my my old man age group of 44. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's been a positive influence on me and the kind of discipline and teamwork and, uh, and a goal setting that you do, in a, in a certainly in, a, in an endurance sport, uh, translates into so many positive areas of your life and career.
0: In both of these sports, a lot of people think they're individual in nature. And while there is an individual aspect, they really are team sports. Because even though you might have your individual portion of the race, it's really about how you were showing up as a member of the team and how you're helping the team overall win. And I imagine just like in running and swimming, there's a huge team dynamic.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. When I, at the Naval Academy, for example, we did uh, dual meets all year, every weekend against uh, our Ivy league and uh, colonial athletic association um, competitors. And it was all about winning. And then we went as, one as a team. We didn't win as individuals. And to be honest with you, my memories at the Naval Academy are primarily of my swim teammates. Uh, I, there's a lot of things that go on at, around the uh, Bancroft Hall, dormitory about all the silliness that people have many memories about, all the discipline. But most of mine were, were in the pool and with my buddies on the team. And that, that's a, and that carried me a, a big way through the Academy.
0: Well, ironically, my plebe and youngster year, my roommate was actually a varsity swimmer. So I got to watch him up close and personal. And I've never seen anyone in my entire life eat that many calories. He was a butterfly racer and I don't think I've ever seen anyone with calves as large as his.
1: Yeah, yeah that's, that's a tough, my daughter is also in butterfly right now. And yeah, that's a demanding stroke. And when you're putting in up to 10 miles a day and you know, the double workouts, <laughs> you kind of need that energy. Well, I wanted to
0: switch from our time at the Naval Academy to you entering the naval service and here again you and i had similar experiences although on different ships that overlapped i happened to be on the uss comp gras which is a decommissioned destroyer and unfortunately before the ship got underway it was the first time in peacetime that a ship had ever been sabotaged and as a result the commanding officer xo and engineering officer were all relieved of command during our cruise. And I think you had something similar happen to you when you were on the USS Kitty Hawk. Can you explain that?
1: You're right. And that's a timely question because many of us Kitty Hawk veterans right now are uh, watching the ship as it is being towed around the Straits of Magellan, around South America to be uh, delivered to uh, a scrapping yard in Texas. And uh, yeah, I love the ship. And I had the, the experience I had that was like yours was our commanding officer, uh, Captain Tom Heil. And we had just finished the first deployment to uh, to fly strikes into Afghanistan, the very first strikes after 9-11 to attack the Taliban. And, um, and we were coming from Japan. We went back to Japan to get the ship ready for now what well, was brewing. And that was the uh, original invasion of Iraq in 2003. And the ship had some major engineering problems. It was the oldest ship in the Navy at the time, the last conventional carrier, non-nuclear, and, um, that, and some other factors about the ship's readiness caused the seventh fleet CO to fire our captain, Tom Heil. And, you know, especially when you have a captain that you love and is, is just a very ser- a servant leader, like he was, uh, that was crushing you know, on the crew. Um, but what inspired us was how he carried himself after. I mean, we all loved him before. Uh, he was great to stand bridge with. I stood bridge He was just always positive, a great leader and, you know, very skilled aviator. But he never once complained. He never once tried to fight it legally. Um, he, he was very quiet about it and, not, and he stayed in. He didn't just give up on the Navy. He stayed in and went on to serve as the chief of staff of the Nimitz strike group. And made a deployment to the Western Pacific and Arabian Gulf. And I, I just am so inspired by his total humility and selflessness. I mean, when people will talk the talk about being you know, selfless and about being being you know, the ethic of service in the military, but that guy walked it like nobody else. And I, uh, I'm still friends with him. And that, that has inspired me and, and really uh, helped me a number of times while I was at NOAA where I was um, – Maybe uh, thinking about leaving and, uh, and his, his example uh, helped me continue and do good.
0: So let's talk about what it means to be an oceanographer, because during my career, I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time with oceanographers, because as I was preparing intel for either the ship or when we went out on seal missions, the entire weather report really played a huge impact along with that intelligence and how we were giving our briefings. So a lot of people think of a weather person as being on TV, but an oceanographer in the Navy goes well beyond that. Can you please discuss what that role is and why it's so vital?
1: Well, great, John. Yes, that was my job for 32 years or really 28. But I include my time at the academy because we had an ID, a military ID, and I studied oceanography there. But ultimately, yeah, the weather and the environment uh, drive all safety and performance in any given mission. And that's why I really loved the field and working as an oceanographer in the Navy, because we worked with every warfare specialty. You know, so you talked about the SEALs. The SEALs used weather information and ocean information more than any other uh, area or at warfare area, because, you know, they're in the element. And, uh, and, and you could, like, for example, if you didn't time the currents right, and you were doing an insertion via uh, Seal delivery vehicle with small mini subs, and you didn't time the tides, right? The currents could uh, prevent you from reading your, reaching your objective point. And that's happened before. So knowing everything about the environment, the weather, visibility, the illumination of the moon, if you were doing a sniper overwatch mission, for example, in Fallujah, bad thing to be e- exposed like that. So they, they planned everything around weather, ocean, and all types of environmental data. And again, there are other things like the ocean has weather, you know, the currents and the salinity and the stratification you see. And that's, those are physical um, aspects of the ocean that, that submarines uh, live and die by because of the fact that their sonar and their ability to see through by sonar, if you will, and detect enemies and avoid enemies is uh, changes and is variable depending upon uh, the ocean conditions and on and on. I mean, of course aviation, everybody knows weather affects av- aviators. And so we were, uh, I've been involved with a, 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 a range of missions. One great example in the longer term climate kind of, where, where, where climate is long-term weather. I had just met with, uh, when I first took over at NOAA, I, I met with Admiral Bill McRaven, the, the uh, commander of the force that uh, killed Osama bin Laden. He's a four-star Navy SEAL, most people know him. And uh, he, t- he told me that, that on that mission, the timing of that mission was driven by, by intel, But also in a huge way by temperature, because as it was warming in Afghanistan, it was reaching the limit. Those special operation helicopters could fly. They can't fly in really warm conditions because they can't generate the sufficient lift they need to to move. And and, and so that was a major planning uh, kind of threshold that they had to kind of get do the mission before it got too warm. And, And they cut it really close, by the way. So, yeah, weather and oceanography were just a fantastic career choice for me. So if someone
0: isn't familiar with what it means to be a flag officer like you are, how would you equate being an admiral or a general to someone in the civilian world?
1: Oh, well, shoot. any senior executive in a company would be something like a vice president or, or, or that equivalent. That's, that's pretty much the flag officer com- community in the Navy and the general officer community and the other services are the senior executives of the service. And, and they're the ones with resources and authority, uh, like in any big company. So what
0: does it mean to be the oceanographer for the United States Navy? It sounds like a ton of responsibilities.
1: Yeah, well, it, I had a number of really awesome titles. Uh, I was the oceanographer for the Navy was my primary job. Uh, it, with that, I had some other jobs, like the navigator of the Navy. Uh, I was the director of a task force on the ocean, task force ocean, task force on climate change and uh, a number of other hats. But uh, ultimately the oceanographer of the Navy is the senior officer of all the oceanographers and aerographers is the enlisted version. Um, in the Navy, they can, that person my job controlled all the budget, all the policy uh, for those 3,500 or so sailors and civilians. So it's a small community that d- did that work across the, the Navy. And, and then it acts as a senior advisor to the chief of naval operations and all things related to the ocean. So I'd be brought in and, and I met with then the CNO, chief of naval operations, John Richardson, uh, because his big concern was he saw China and Russia catching up in their ocean science and technology capabilities. And he knew that for our undersea warfare forces, uh, SEALs, submarines, to stay ahead and be competitive, we had to know the ocean better than them. Um, it's kind of like the concept of high ground in, in land warfare. Having the high ground uh, gives you a, a tactical advantage. There's high ground in the ocean and knowing it's better than the adversary, whether it be through submarine operations or various types of intelligence collections, naval special warfare, um, and joint ops and all types, that will allow US forces to be basically have a better position and, and prevail. So then coming out of that role, How did you make the
0: transition to become the Assistant Secretary of Commerce and the Deputy Administrator for NOAA? And if someone's not familiar with NOAA's mission, can you please explain it to them?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to, John. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, is an agency in the Department of Commerce, and it's America's top ocean, climate, and weather agency. So anything regarding those three areas, we cover down, we do the science, we, I say we, I feel like I'm still part of that great agency. Uh, There's a scientific and research component, there's an operational support component, um, and there's a a kind of public service component. And so you have like the weather service that provides forecasts and warnings to uh, people across the country. Uh, You know, big hurricane comes up towards uh, the Atlantic, let's say, and you have the National Hurricane Center and the National Weather Service putting out advisories and warnings and saving lives. And there's the Ocean Service, which does charts and, uh, and a variety of conservation areas like coral reef protection. You have a, a satellite office that does, flies uh, 18 weather satellites. The environmental satellites are, are amazing pieces of technology. And they, again, that data saves lives. You NOAA know, also runs our, our, and manages our nation's fisheries. And, uh, and then also there's a NOAA Corps, which is just like the Navy and naval oceanography, like, the, like my field. And so the reason I kind of came over, but I did come over is because they saw what I did in the Navy. And, and the, the folks um, in the last administration thought, well, you know, uh, that's really everything that happens at NOAA, except instead of being just for the Navy, it's for the nation. And I, so I was pretty well equipped to come over and oversee activities I hadn't been seeing in the Navy for you know, nearly 30 years.
0: Yes. When I first reached out to you four years ago, I was working for another company and we were co-headquartered in the St. Petersburg location of NOAA. And it was really eye-opening for me to get to see firsthand all the different missions that they were performing. So one of the things I learned about you back then was your involvement in the Blue Economy Initiative. And if a listener isn't aware of what the Blue Economy is, perhaps you can give them a much more in-depth explanation.
1: That's great. Yeah, I love this, of course. That was probably my signature initiative at NOAA. So in establishing our priorities, when we came in, our team of um, leaders in in the agency in 2017, uh, we picked a few topic areas to advance. And uh, one of them was science and technology, AI, drones, things like that, applying it to all of our missions. Uh, another was um, satellites and diversifying our satellite architecture. Another was uh, our weather model. When you hear about the American weather model always being maybe inferior to the European model, uh, really important life-saving capability. NOAA and the Weather Service own that American model. and Our goal was to make it better than any other model in the world. And we put things in place to do it. And then lastly, the one that I owned was this Blue Economy Initiative. And simply put, the Blue Economy is a term for uh, all of the ocean and coastal-based uh, areas of economic activity and growth, and the the key aspect of the term blue economy refers not just ocean activities and, and economy and growth, but sustainable ocean economic growth. So, you know, fisheries, for example, uh, it's not just about overfishing; it's about fishing so that we don't oh, we don't overfish, we don't catch it, we we sustainably keep the fish stocks. And so by managing that resource, for example, we will ensure a ro- robust fisheries for future generations and so on and so forth. You could think about like, for example, if one part of the marine economy that I think is uh, really important is marine debris removal, marine plastic removal and prevention. Uh, people don't want to go to trashy beaches and NOAA conducted several studies that showed that uh, any given county, like in Southern California, would see revenue uh, uh, amounts of ten to 20, tens of millions of dollars more by exercising some very inexpensive beach cleanup activities, and so uh, and there's just many other aspects of the of the ocean and coastal economy. There's uh, you know, tourism and recreation on beaches. There's also um, uh, this area that's really getting increasing focus, and that's coastal resilience. So, uh, a combination of activities, whether it be Build, building out natural infrastructure, like restoring marshland that prevents inundation and helps you know, communities not suffer from s- storms at, as high as to high as a degree or um, uh, other activities such as um, better weather forecasting is a huge preparedness activity for coastal uh, coastal residents. Um, yeah, so the ocean economy, blue economy, it's all about being sustainable and not not um, and and protecting our resources at the same time.
0: I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to Passion Struck. So I want to use this as a jumping point to discuss something that's not only important to us here in the United States, but globally, and that's our oceans. And one of the things that was eye-opening for me was watching the Netflix documentary Seaspiracy and how fishing operations are having such a cascading impact on so many of the fish species and their role in supporting all of humanity and i know you are very very involved with how do we take a look at protecting these species the impacts of climate change and so many other things so i thought you could dive into this a bit
1: oh i'd be happy to i'm passionate about this but quick disclaimer john i am not uh, i'm not endorsing the, the film Sea spiracy they get a lot of things wrong in that and I wouldn't call it entirely scientific, scientifically based. Um, but however, uh, the, the the idea that ocean and environmental conservation is important for our well-being, for our economic prosperity, uh, is and, and national security. You know, if we talk about that, that's that's absolutely valid. And so, for you know, for example, and it's really an interesting time. It's not new. We're celebrating the 50th anniversary of several pieces of legislation. I think the Clean Water Act is one, the National Marine Sanctuaries Act is another, uh, and there's a few uh, Endangered uh, Species Act, as well as I believe the Marine Mammal Protection Act, all of those you know, that have been in place for several decades. And, and now, we're, what we're seeing though today is more and more people, philanthropies, industries, and governments getting behind conservation. For all the good that it does, whether it be again the economy, our own well-being, and, and national security. Um, like for example, let me like a couple really inter- interesting ones are coral reef conservation. I'm part of a nonprofit called Force Blue. I'm on their board of directors, and it's special forces veterans that are helping restore and, and replant coral in South Florida. Well, there's so many great results of that. Corals are the are the nurseries for fisheries. They're also important tourism destinations, and state of Florida it benefits by about eight billion dollars a year from coral reefs alone. And then, of course, you have the, the the fact that coral reefs help resist inundation and wave action, so they get they're great barriers to um, storm surge and, and the like. And so that is something important for coastal communities and their resilience. And uh and and that's just, and then of course just the biodiversity of the ocean and then the genuine just um, uh good that is in that uh our coral reefs are are really the coin of the realm in terms of biodiversity so there's just all these really good aspects of conservation corals are one you could look at uh, wetlands as another you could look at the deep ocean as another there's life throughout the water column and one of that's an area that people are increasingly concerned of because you see we're really dependent upon foreign sources for critical minerals and what's happening is people are looking at the deep ocean for mining those. And that's a bit of a concern because there's habitat there that we don't want to destroy either. And so uh, you kind of get the picture.
0: So I wanted to talk about another thing that happened while you were at NOAA. During that time, you struck a deal with the Navy to create fast-tracked Unmanned Maritime Systems. I thought that was so fascinating. Could you talk a little bit about that program?
1: That's one thing in the, the conservation discussion that sort of gets overlooked. You, you, often people want to overregulate and protect, which is all good. It's good to protect. It's like there's this sort of tension, whether are we just going to overprotect so that, that uh, people can enjoy the outdoors, if you will? Um, were we gonna, are we going to be slack on that and put the environment at risk? And so there's this healthy tension. And one area that can sort of create win wins in all of this is technology. And so drone technology has just exploded. And then when I was in the Navy, I advanced that in a pretty big way to monitor the ocean, the ocean currents, the ocean temperature. And then I carried that on to NOAA and grew. And Basically, they had no organized uncrewed vehicle program, and they do now. Uh, we got that passed in legislation or some legislation and the new president's budget of 2020. Now they have a formal program, a new office uh, and an operations center. And, and and why? Because NOAA uses drones for just about everything. That we, we used uh, surface drones, for example, to do fishery surveys with sonars to assess their, their biomass, if you will, and set catch limits, really important for the Alaska fishery um, last year. And in fact, had we not been able to take those drones out, which not, by the way, our ships weren't able to go out because of COVID, so we took the drones out there, did this survey, and because we had the data, uh, the fisheries managers were able to set catch limits um, to an extent that basically fishermen were able to earn a hundred million more dollars that year in the Alaskan pollock Fishery. Just one example, a hundred million dollar drone survey right there. Uh, we are using drones flying out of our hurricane hunter aircraft to monitor the hurricane uh, wind speed intensity and, uh, and structure, if you will, in the, uh, in, in the in hurricanes which is really important data to to predict their intensity. Uh, We're using aerial drones to map coral and other habitats and underwater drones to survey the ocean. It's a fantastic program. And and then we're actually adding on a number of other technologies. Uh, By imaging with these drones, we then apply machine learning and better characterize environments and classify them for conservation and, and and study scientific research. And uh, I could just keep going on. But you you see that there's quite a bit of activity by using uncrewed systems to uh, monitor the environment.
0: Yeah. So another thing that you did uh, while you were at NOAA was uh, you did a partnership with a company called Vulcan to use a system called Skylight for marine information, especially around unreported and unregulated fishing activities, which I thought was just what a, what a cool partnership. Um, can you explain what that technology does and how it worked?
1: Yes, that's good, John. So uh, Vulcan uh, was Paul Allen's company. And yes, we worked with them to develop an AI-based tool to take uh, AIS data, which is the automated identification system that ships use to transmit their location and uh, sort of basically uh, geographically identify areas where illegal fishing w- was potentially occurring uh, using a bunch of different rules, if you will, of, of known illegal fishing activity in the past. Certain waters are more subject to it than others uh, because they have lax enforcement like in the Central Pacific. In um, a bigger picture, I like that example because it highlighted two things. One is the power of partnerships. So we've partnered with a number of philanthropies like Vulcan, as well as uh, commercial companies like Caladan Oceanic to expand our mission of ocean conservation, uh, science and, and research and exploration and mapping. Um, the Caledon Oceanic one is really neat because it was it was the, led by Victor Vescovo, this this famous ocean explorer who's still diving the world's trenches and uh, he set the record for diving in the Challenger deep. I think he's gone there 16 times in his own Triton submersible uh, manufactured, a human operated submersible. So super awesome partner who helped us map the Challenger deep and other places that Noah could never have done. So partnerships are really key there. Um, and the other interesting thing that, 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 that Vulcan um, Skylight Project highlighted was just what you said, is the increasing potential for advanced technologies, AI drones, like we talked about. Uh, there was a thing also that's fascinating called omics, which is an umbrella term for basically bioinformatics, epigenetics, genomics, metabolomics, transcriptomics. It's microbiological big data And that's allowing us to understand ecosystems non-invasively, so not having to capture sea life to study it, but actually just take like, for example, some of the skin or cells that come off a a fish and being able to analyze the DNA and know in a scoop of seawater how many species are in that area. So all sorts of great technologies is is what I'm saying. And so technologies and partnerships work something I think that we were able to promote and advance NOAA's important mission.
0: Well, well, that's fantastic and and very fascinating because the more I look into the ocean, the more I realize um, we've almost explored space in many ways more than we've explored the depths of our own ocean. So can't wait for that science to increase so we can go deeper and deeper and uh, see more into the incredible life that's down there. So I I wanted to use this as a jumping off point to to start talking about leadership and the consulting business that you're doing now. But I thought um, it would be an interesting segue to talk about ADHD. And I'm not talking about the ADHD um, that you see in kids or or people with attention deficit disorder, but you have a different type of ADHD. And I thought uh, we could just spend a couple minutes on that. (laughs)
1: Yes, thank you, John. Well, this is my term. This is one of my mentors, longtime mentors, Admiral John White, former oceanographer of the Navy, uh, whose footsteps I followed in his. And he kind of introduced me at one meeting and it sort of stuck. But he uh, mentioned the fact that I'm an admiral. Yes. uh, And a that um, I am also a doctor, a Ph.D., and then um, I'm the Honorable. So when you would get a Senate confirmed uh, politically appointed position, and uh, that that's gives you the title of the Honorable. Um, and so having those three and you include my devotion to our country, uh, that was uh, his term for m- me being an ADHD professional, if you will. Huh. Okay. But, but, <laughs> and this is, this is classic John White because he's such a great guy and he just got a beautiful sense of humor. And yeah. uh, it was a it was fun one. So it kind of stuck.
0: Well, I I love it. Um, And I was wondering, um, while you were in the administration, I had a friend who was the Assistant Secretary of State, uh, Keith Crotch. Um, Ah. Yes. uh, I've known Keith for about 20 years. Oh, how about Uh, that? Okay. um, And I was wondering, and maybe the audience doesn't realize it, but you were both the Assistant Secretary of Commerce and then the Undersecretary of Commerce. And what is the difference between the two titles and responsibilities?
1: Okay, quickly, uh, the undersecretary is higher than an assistant secretary. And and that's, uh, so I was acting undersecretary and also the acting no administrator for a year because the White House nominee for that position had not been um, confirmed. And then ultimately he never was confirmed. So I maintained that position. I was appointed as the assistant secretary one below the undersecretary and, and the deputy administrator, one below the administrator. So, and then, then my counterpart, who was another assistant secretary, we, we switched places basically because there was never a confirmed administrator and he took over as the acting undersecretary and no administrator. Well, I reverted to my original position and it was actually for that reason to focus on the blue economy initiative because we weren't uh, the administrator had a lot of. Uh, <laughs> administrative duties. And, uh, and then ultimately, I was able to have a lot more time to focus on some initiatives like that, and, uh, and, and the science and technology I talked about. Okay, so one of
0: the things that we both obtained, and it was one of the main driving forces for me going to the Naval Academy is, in addition to getting to study great things such as oceanography or engineering, I really think it's one of the premier leadership institutions in the world and so I'm sure you had similar experiences, but I got to meet Admiral Stockdale and Admiral Lawrence and Roger Staubach and Ross Perot and Senator McCain did our commencement speech. And so you get this exposure to the leaders, some who are Naval Academy grads, some who are just significant worldwide leaders. But how much do you think both that beginning Stages at the Naval Academy, and then your time as a JO, and then as you moved up to a lieutenant commander and commander, how much of that leadership acumen has now defined um, your career and what you've accomplished?
1: Great question. And I would say all of it, really. You lead from the beginning. I mean, I wouldn't say I was a natural leader, uh, I was, um, but the Academy gives you all the uh, basics and lays the foundation. And then through great mentors, enlisted and officers, uh, me and you, we, we were carried by people who helped shape and refine uh, our, our leadership skills and overall approach. And I'm thankful for every one of them. There's thousands of them that I couldn't name right now, but, but that's kind of how it happened. And what I've discovered and seen is that Everybody has an opportunity to lead. It doesn't have to be one in authority. You don't have to be senior to be a leader. And I've seen many junior sailors lead me uh, in terms of character and attitude. It's been a progression for me. And I'd say it went into really high gear as a flag officer, because when you're an admiral in the Navy, you're in charge of a community and a a command uh, with thousands of people. You're in the press. Everyone looks at you. Everyone listens to you. They know that you're setting the tone, the direction. And so I was very mindful about that and thought long and hard about my leadership approach and the words I would say, the things I would do, knowing it was on full display and could move people or not. And and it's a wonderful privilege. Um, And then I think it went into even higher gear, or I know it did, when I was at NOAA, because then then it was really upping my game. I was in charge of a 20,000-person agency uh, distributed all around the world with a $6 billion budget and, and then influencing uh, tens of thousands of more in terms of partnerships in a community in the earth and ocean and climate science community in the U.S. and internationally. So you know, long story short, the higher I got, the more I really appreciated that I had a, a wide aperture and, and, a, and I, I affected a lot of people. And that I took that obligation very seriously, but i didn't I didn't stress out about it. I actually viewed it as a great gift. I thought, man, if I do if I every day say something good to somebody in public or even just individually, you know I can affect a great deal of good in the few four years I had in the agency. And long story short, I think that happened. i I, I think we ended up succeeding pretty well, and people, I think, were uplifted in a number of areas. Uh, and the agency continues to thrive.
0: Well, you do something that I have only seen a couple leaders in my entire career do. Um, One of those happened to be Ross Perot. The other um, is a gentleman I worked with at Lowe's named Steve Solaji. And Steve, at that point in time, was the head of uh, distribution at Lowe's. And it's a big job. He had close to 30,000 employees under them across all these different distribution centers. Most of them, if it was a full distribution center, these things have 1,000 plus employees each. They're a million and a half square foot. Um, But where I'm going with this is I met Ross Perot one time and it was amazing to see him at this point in time, he was in his eighties when I got a chance to meet him. But at Perot Systems, he would just randomly pick a table to sit down at and he would join you and have, have lunch with you. But every time after that, that I ever saw him and it could be months away, he would always go, Hey, John, how are you doing? How's your son? How's your daughter? And it was the same thing with Steve Solaji. We would go to a facility up in uh, Chicago or Indiana and he might get there once a year. And I swear he knew 75 to 80% of the people's names. And not only that, their hobbies, their spouse's names, their kids. And I know this is something you pride yourself in. Um, and I just wanted to know, how do you do it? Because it's something I have tried to do and have never mastered.
1: Wow. Well, I wouldn't. Thank you, John. I wouldn't say I pride myself in it. That's, a, that's like the wrong way to look at it because it's not definitely about me. Uh, but you're right. I think one of the most important leadership tools, if you will, is exactly that, knowing your people and really learning about them, knowing who they are and remembering them. How I do it, it just takes work. Uh, but it, I, I found it was delightful because I'm interested in people. So the way I did it is I would look every time I had a meeting, uh, I, I'd prepare for it. I, I'd look who was on the meeting and I'd always look them all up if they were on LinkedIn or, just, or if there was a web story on them. And and I always throw that back at meetings. Oh, you had you got your degree here, or you did this recent project, or you know, so on, like that kind of thing. That connection is so powerful, and people light up, especially when you're in charge of a big agency like your, your friend at Lowe's. You know, for someone like that to remember uh, a a more a lower level junior employee's name is amazingly powerful and positive, and that that's what I meant by the obligation and the gift. Uh, if you took the time to do that, when you take the time to do that, uh, it just it just lights people up. And, and I've, I've gotten feedback to that, you know, use those exact words about being remembered, feeling valued. And, it, and that's it's just very simple. It's emotion and Intel- emotional intelligence 101. And I also liked it, though. It was just it's so delightful to know your people, to, to see what they're doing. Um, Because I I personally, I just identified with everyone at NOAA. Most of them had environmental science degrees. Uh, We had a lot of common experiences. Some had been, many had been in the Navy. And so uh, it was just, I had so much joy uh, day to day working with the employees of the agency. And by showing that personal attention, um, I think it it served the agency well. uh, And uh, and our kind of morale scores in the federal surveys uh, reflected that.
0: Yes, well, in St. Pete, uh, a friend of mine was the controller. Um, and one time I was talking to her, to her and telling her, I, I think I was going to interview you. And she go, she's an Air Force veteran. And she said, in my entire time in the military, I've only ever gotten one email from a flag officer. And it was Admiral Gallaudet. And it was about him congratulating me for some good work that I did. And she goes, I had no idea he even knew I existed. And so oh, she no. said it... It really made her double down on wanting to be part of of Noah because of that kind act. So I thought I'd pass that on to you.
1: Oh, that's so, that just really makes my day. I've heard that before uh, a lot. And that's exactly the case that uh, to be able to do that, to have that gift. I think too many people approach leadership as a sort of like, okay, what am I going to accomplish? And for the, you know, in terms of the job. Uh, And I think it's equally important to talk about like, what effect am I going to have? For on the people. And I, I did that thousands of times. And, I, and it wasn't just a little random email where it was just like I would take time and I'd learn about what that person did. And of course, I wouldn't just like say everything was great. We had prioritized. And if someone was really supporting what we thought were the, the priorities of the agency in a substantive way, I'd look them up, learn about them, send them a note and, and have an exchange. Um, and so that, that's nice to hear. I appreciate the positive feedback.
0: Yeah, something I did, and I once I reached the stage of having 6000 plus employees, I couldn't do it anymore was on everyone's birthday, I used to write a handwritten note to them, um, regardless Mm. of where they were located. And I would wish them a happy birthday. But more importantly, I would thank them and tell them how important their work that they did mattered. And it it went so much further than you could possibly ever imagine. And them wanting to be part of what you were creating. So I think that's great
1: what you did. Um, uh, I wanted well, to... kudos to you. That is really, and you get it because when they get that letter, they show other people, they show everybody in their work center. Hey, look at this! The boss sent me this, and and the effect on the whole agency is just cannot be uh, uh, underestimated. So good, good for you, John. That's great to hear.
0: Well, it leads me to a question that I often debate with people, and that is, going forward, do you think it's more important for someone have emotional intelligence or to be focused on the adaptability equation? Um, because, you know, everyone used to talk about emotional intelligence and now more and more people are talking about AQ. Um, and obviously you probably need a balance of both, but does one ring out to, to be a stronger priority for you?
1: Oh, no, I think both are important. I can't praise one over the other. Um, and, and the important thing is don't sacrifice one for the other. <laughs> That's, that's yes, uh, the both, both matter. And, uh, you know, a good leader has to a good leader will find a way to be able to do it all. Uh, I am not one that, you know, a lot of people think that if I do something, I can't do the uh, something else. I, I think uh, being creative uh, and, and, and thinking things through uh, you, you can do a lot more than you, you know, you, you think you you're capable of doing.
0: Yeah, I can agree more. Um, so with that, I wanted to, to, Transition, and I am going to make sure I put this on my web page, so if someone's listened to this, you'll be able to grab it there. Um, you have a one pager, which I think is a an incredible idea, but it's a it's a one pager about your leadership um, acumen, and it's called all in all Good, and all for one and so I just was hoping you could touch on that and then maybe use this as a jumping off point to talk about. Your upcoming book, uh, Holding Fast in Heavy Seas, because I think the two kind of go hand in hand.
1: Yeah. OK, John, sure. This, this was interesting. I, everybody in the Navy, you recall, in command, develops a leadership philosophy. It's you know a statement of what I believe in as a leader. And you post that or make it available for all hands to see. And it's a great tool uh, for people to know what their, their leader is about. And um, and it's uh, and to help them in their own journey of leader development. And so I had been trained in that. I had good people like my friend, Admiral John White, uh, helped influence me, show me what he did. And I did that in every command tour I had. I got to NOAA and, and I uh, saw how hungry people were to develop as leaders. Uh, Because in civilian science agency, you know, leader development programs are not like they are at the Naval Academy and the Navy as a service. And so I thought, wow. And and they looked to me as an admiral in the Navy, as like someone who could lead. Like they thought, okay, he must know something. And I thought, well, I do. Uh, Why not share it? And so I did that. I put it all into one page and kind of a summary of my principles and philosophy. And, and so, and I did it in a way that was sort of nautical and easy to remember. Um, and, uh, and, and the idea is that, uh, that I wanted something that people would look at, remember and be a, a nice guide for them. And I, so I, I kind of put it into a glossy and, uh, and then I shared it everywhere. And I, and I had people tell me they hung it up in their conference rooms and framed it. <laughs> I mean, it was, I was, the response was pretty amazing and I still sent it around and I, uh, and now And and with that in mind, I thought, you know, I I do have a story here, and it's sort of the basis of this of a book I'm going to write about how I learned all these leadership principles. And again, I break it into three kind of pillars: all in being commitment, all good being positive attitude, hugely important, and all for one being humble and and a team player. And and I have you know there's details under each. It's on one page and. Ultimately, all of that I learned in the Navy, and when I got to NOAA, I saw how important it was to apply it in a federal agency, especially during the last four years. I mean, you know, you, whatever side of the aisle you're on, um, there were some, some, some challenges that, uh, that uh, we had in government. And so uh, my book is titled Holding Fast in Heavy Seas, Leading America's Top Ocean Agency in Turbulent Times. And I go into how I I developed my leadership approach and how I applied it to this great agency with wonderful people who wanted to be led by leaders with integrity uh, and who valued their work. And so um, there's a lot of ups and downs and a lot of very interesting people. I've met both President Biden and Bush and many congressmen and senators and a few astronauts and Nobel Prize winners and so on and so forth. It was a great journey, and I uh, hope to release it uh, sometime in the fall of 2022.
0: Okay. Well, I can't wait to get a copy of that book. And now I understand that you are now consulting, and I'm just going to give some of the names of people you're advising. One of them is actually a company I used to work for, Booz Allen & Hamilton, Precursor SBC, Zona Space Systems, Sofa Ocean, IX Blue, Tomorrow. Linker Technologies and many more. And I, I just wanted to ask you someone would be interested in your services. What are you specializing in now?
1: <laughs> That's great. Thank you for doing that. Well, when I was at NOAA and in the Navy, I saw the value of private industry. We partnered Navy and NOAA both with the private sector to do so much work, like with drones and technology. And so now I'm working with many of those same companies. Uh, to advance the mission of federal agencies and um, and provide for better environmental stewardship, understanding, and, and of course, the national security piece through the Navy. So those companies you just read off, uh, all of them are doing really innovative ocean weather and environmental tech and science. And, uh, and I love that. I love that field and area. All of these companies are innovative and and they have great cultures. And so ultimately if, if, uh, People or anybody out there is working in a startup that's trying to uh, get some work with NOAA, the Navy, the federal government, uh, or even universities and international customers. Uh, I really know a little bit about ocean tech and environmental tech, and, I, and I'm passionate about it. So I'd be happy to help. Okay.
0: Um, and if someone was looking for a way to get in touch with you, what are some ways they could reach you on social media?
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. your website. Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. I kind of don't really watch my Instagram account, but my kids do. And uh, then, of course, yeah, I, I'm. Uh, I do have a web page. My daughter gave me. I don't really need it, so um, I have a lot of people offering to upgrade it. But it's just fun to have. My company is oceanstl.com, and uh, and you could always email me at oceanstlleader. Oceanstleader@gmail.com. at gmail.com.
0: Yes, and I also encourage uh, the audience because I got to listen to a few of them, your podcast, because I love how you would bring panelists um, on board, which is something that uh, I would love to do going forward. I'm going to end with one last question. Um, I've had the opportunity to interview a number of astronauts. Um, some of them you probably know, Wendy Lawrence, who actually was my physics teacher at the Academy. Chris Cassidy, my cla- Chris Cassidy, my classmate, uh, who I went to NAPS with. And uh, most recently, Kaylee, Kayla Barron, who happens to be on the ISS right now. And my question to you would be, and I, I, I think I'm going to get an interesting answer. Um, if you were sent to Mars and you were one of the first people who landed and they said that you could put in one law regulation premise for, for humanity of Mars going forward, what would it be?
1: Oh, gosh. It's, uh, to me, that's a, a no-brainer. The golden rule, treat others like you want to be treated, is, is really the essence of my leadership philosophy and whole approach to life. That, that, that works everywhere. Uh, you know, it, Its author it was, pre- you know, it was very genius in coming up with it. And I think people need to do that more here. And if we ever go colonize Mars, <laughs> that should be rule number one. Okay.
0: Well, on on that, uh, Admiral Gallaudet, I'm going to end today's discussion. And thank you so much for joining us on the Passion Struck podcast.
1: Oh, it's been fantastic. Thanks for including me, John. I'm so excited I
0: could bring to you that interview today with Admiral Gallaudet, one that I have had in the works for over four years since he was the NOAA administrator back in 2018. I truly hope that you enjoyed his words of wisdom, his leadership example, and his advice on so many topics. And if there's a person like Rear Admiral Gallaudet, Susan Kane, Gretchen Rubin, Admiral Stavridis, or other upcoming guests we have that you would like to see me interview, please reach out to me on Instagram at John R. Miles or on LinkedIn at John Miles. And if there's a topic that you would like to hear me discuss on our Momentum Friday episodes, please reach out to us an email at Momentum Friday at passionstruck.com. I so appreciate all your support, all the five-star reviews globally, and now over 90 different countries subscribing to our podcast. Now go out there and live life passion struck. Thank you so much for joining us. The purpose of our show is to make passion go viral. And we do that by sharing with you the knowledge and skills that you need to unlock your hidden potential. If you want to hear more, please subscribe to the Passion Struck podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts at. And if you absolutely love this episode, we'd appreciate a five star rating on iTunes and you sharing it with three of your most growth minded friends so they can post it as well to their social accounts and help us grow our Passion Struck community. If you'd like to learn more about the show, And our mission, you can go to passionstruck.com where you can sign up for our, our newsletter, look at our tools, and also download the show notes for today's episode. Additionally, you can listen to us every Tuesday and Friday for even more inspiring content. And remember, make a choice, work hard, and step into your sharp edges. Thank you again for joining us.